All right, so today we're going to be talking about the suburban era, chapter 28. This is going to be 1945 to 1963. So let's get started here. So with the rise of the suburbs, you got to talk about the rise of the population, right? So in the 1930s, birth rates, they were at their low point in American history, about only 18 to 19 births for every 1,000 people. But as the prosperity returns, we see birth rates rise. By 1952, they had passed 25 for every 1,000 to reach one of the highest fertility rates in the world. These new brides are going to be younger, and so that it translates into increased fertility. And Americans choose to have larger families at this time. Number with the number of families with three children triples. The number with four quadruples. So this increased birth rate is not going to be just confined to the U.S. You can also see it in Australia, New Zealand, Britain, West Germany. But in the 1940s, inexpensive suburban housing starts to become synonymous with the name of a real estate developer named William Levitt. So he had been building houses for war workers, and he learns how to use mass production techniques doing that. So in 1947, he begins construction of a 17,000 house community in the New York City suburb of Hempstead. And we start to see single-family houses with very spacious lawns, you know, having all that requires lots of open land, you know. It's not these, you know, row houses that we see built up side-by-side in some earlier suburban developments. So this means that Levitt and the other builders, they choose vacant areas outside major urban centers. So with the new houses being farther from the factories, offices, jobs, the automobile now becomes more indispensable than ever because they have to commute, right? And as the population starts shifting to the suburbs, traffic is going to be very congested on old country roads. So to try and ease this congestion, the Eisenhower administration they're going to propose a 20-year plan to build a massive interstate highway system. And to try and get support, Eisenhower addresses a lot of Cold War fears with this, arguing that the new system would help cities evacuate in case of a nuclear attack. And Congress will then pass the Interstate Highway Act from 1956. This begins the largest public works project in American history. And the new interstates affect cities in ways less expected. So now we're going to see beltways wrapping around cities. So instead of directing directing traffic towards town, they can now just avoid the city altogether. You know, the city center altogether. We'll see inner city rail service and mass transit use. This declines as well. And minorities start to replace the white population that's moving to the suburbs. So the African-American and Latino populations were leaving rural areas in search of work in urban areas. Most African Americans head for the Northeast and Upper Midwest. And so what does the culture of suburbia kind of look like? So Americans in the mid 20th century, they look to church worship very speedily. You know, church membership is going to rise to about 50% for the first time in the 20th century. And many political leaders see religion as a weapon in the Cold War. And that's because, you know, after all, communists are supposed to be these avowed atheists. Very prominent clergy point out that even the Pledge of Allegiance is so secular, any young Soviet child should recite it, or can recite it. So in 1954, Congress is going to add the pledges, one nation indivisible, you know, to that phrase. They're also going to add under God. 
So yeah, that part was not originally in our Pledge of Allegiance, y'all. Yeah. So homemaking. Alright, so getting into homemaking here. So for housewives, the single-family suburban home requires more labor to keep it clean. Right? At the same time, the baby boom it leaves, sub it leaves suburban mothers with more children to tend to, less help from relatives and grandparents that less often live nearby. Increased dependence on automobiles makes many suburban housewives being the chauffeur of their family. So by the 1950s, housewives doing errands uh, replaced milkmen and grocers making deliveries. So the percentage of wives working outside the home will also double between 1940 and 1960, so from 15% up to 30%. Some women take jobs simply just to help make ends meet, more than you know, but more than financial necessity is involved. Middle class married women go to work as often as the lower class wives did. Those with college degrees are more likely to get a job. And two-income families, they're able to spend a little more on extras, right? Gifts, education, recreation, household appliances. And women also find status and self-fulfillment in their jobs. You know, it's a chance for increased social contacts. And more women are attending college, uh, but that doesn't necessarily equate to income equality, right? So the average wage for women is going to be half that of men. It's a greater gap than any other industrial nation. And we also see the entrance of television into the American mainstream. This comes only after World War II. By 1949, we see Americans own only a million televisions, right? By 1960, more Americans own televisions than they did bathrooms. Theater attendance is going to be dropping as families you know, can watch entertainment on television. Some will drive their families to drive in theaters so you can enjoy a film from the comfort of your car, but there are still those that prefer not to leave the comfort of their homes, right? So in 1948, the Democratic and Republican National Conventions, they will be broadcast on television for the first time. We see television really changing things at this time. And so... In the last podcast, I talked about how Eisenhower's president. So what does his presidency look like, right? So as president, Eisenhower will support key New Deal programs, including an increase in Social Security, unemployment insurance, the minimum wage as well. He accepts a small public housing program and a modest federally supported medical insurance plan for the needy. But he's very opposed to big government, you know, because he is a conservative. He rejects uh, more far-reaching liberal proposals on housing and universal health care through the Social Security system. And Eisenhower is more reluctant to imitate New Deal efforts to try and stimulate the economy. So when a recession strikes in 1953 to 1954, the administration is going to be more concerned with balancing the budget and holding inflation in line than actually reducing unemployment through government spending. Right. Eisenhower is less prag is pragmatic in some other ways, though. So when major projects call for federal leadership, he does support them. In 1954, he will sign the St. Lawrence Seaway Act. This joins the United States and Canada in a very big, ambitious engineering project 
to open up the Great Lakes to ocean shipping. And Eisenhower remains popular. He gets reelected in 1956, and the economy causes the Democrats to take over in the 1954 midterm election, and again in his 1958, so not just the 54 midterm, but also the 58 midterm elections. Sorry about that. And then we see, oh no, juvenile delinquency, rock and roll, rebellion going on, right? So young Americans are going to be probably the sharpest critics of suburbia. So we'll see dance crazes, very outlandish clothing, slang, rebelliousness, all sexual precociousness, right? All these behaviors change that respectability of the middle class. And there will be more than a few educators that warn that America had created a generation of these rebellious juvenile delinquents. Some even blame comic books. Others put the blame on film and music lyrics. And looking at music, before 1954, music was divided into three categories. You had pop, country and western, and then rhythm and blues. There were a handful of record companies that almost exclusively white artists dominated the pop charts. And country and western was split into cowboy musicians like Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, but then you had the hillbilly style that was generally associated with Nashville and rhythm and blues gets treated by the music industry as quote unquote race music. Right. But soon we start to see these three styles of music overlap. Singers on white pop charts start recording a few songs from country and from rhythm and blues. There's going to be a man named Bill Haley that brings the new blend to the forefront in 1954 with a song called Shake, Rattle, and Roll. It's going to be the first rock song to reach the top 10 on the pop charts. And then comes Elvis. Elvis Presley, right? By background, Elvis is a country boy. You know, his musical style combines elements of gospel, country, and blues. But what really energizes, electrifies teenage audiences will be, you know, his hip-swinging performances. And to conservative adults, Presley's appearance with the long hair and his sideburns, its tight jeans, this seems delinquent. It seems to be an expression of hostile rebellion. Right? And this isn't the only thing that's changing as being kind of a rebellion against uh, suburbia here. So we see in rundown urban neighborhoods and college towns, we'll see a... Mishmash, motley collection of artists, intellectuals, middle-class students, they all separate themselves and drop out of mainstream society. And so in dress and behavior, they're called the beats, the beatniks, right? They self-consciously reject what they view as being the excessive spiritual bankruptcy of the middle-class culture in America. And they are definitely nonconformists in this conformist world, right? So these cool urban hipsters, especially jazz musicians like John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, you know, they are their models. They'll read poetry, listen to jazz, explore oriental philosophy like Buddhism. They'll also experiment very openly with drugs and mystical religions, even sex as well, right? So there's a lot of changes going on. All right. So we've been talking about, you know, the suburban era, rise of suburbia, but what about, you know, what's going on in the world at this time? So nuclear weapons figure into the American response to a crisis in Indochina. 
that's later going to be Vietnam. So here is where the Vietnamese forces that were led by Ho Chi Minh, they're fighting the French and they had reestablished their colonial rule at the end of World War II. The French did. So between 1950 and 54, the U.S. provided France with more than a billion dollars in military aid in Vietnam. Eisenhower worried if Vietnam falls to a communist revolutionary like Ho Chi Minh, then the other countries in Southeast Asia will follow. So Eisenhower and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they proposed a massive American air raid. Maybe, and even using tactical nuclear weapons, but ultimately Eisenhower pulls back. You know, the idea of American involvement in another Asian war arouses a lot of opposition from both allies and the domestic political leaders. But Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, he convinces Eisenhower to support a South Vietnamese government under a man named Ngo Dinh Diem to try and oppose the popularity in the north of Ho Chi Minh. So to help keep him in power, Ngo Dinh Diem, the U.S. will send a military mission to train the South Vietnamese army. It's a very small commitment, but this is definitely one that's going to last for over a decade. And looking at what the superpowers are. So the Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin, he dies in March of 1953. The power in Soviet Union will then fall to Nikita Khrushchev. And he moderates some of the flamboyance and excesses of the Stalin years. He gradually shifts the Soviet economy toward production of consumer goods. And internationally, he calls for an easing of tensions and reduced forces in Europe. Hoping to make Western Europeans less dependent on the U.S. In 1955, the Americans, British, French, and Soviets meet in a conference at Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, not much comes out of this conference. summit but there is a cordial spirit of Geneva you know it hints that you know a cooling in the arms race may be possible so Khrushchev his moderation encourages nationalists and Soviet controlled Eastern Europe to push for greater independence riots erupt in Poland and hungry students take to the streets demanding a coalition government replace the puppet regime that was established by Stalin And at first, Moscow accepts the new Hungarian government and they start to remove Soviet tanks. But when Hungary announces they're withdrawing from the Warsaw Pact, the tanks roll back into Budapest and crush the uprising in October of 1956. In Iran, nationalists are leaning toward the Soviets, but Eisenhower approves a CIA operation in 1953 to try and oust the government and restore a firm ally, the Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. In Egypt, the leader Gamal Abdel Nasser forms an alliance against the young state of Israel and pursues economic ties with the Warsaw Bloc. Secretary Dulles then withdraws the American offer of aid that was going to help build the Aswan Dam. Nasser then retaliates by seizing the British-operated Universal Suez Canal Company. And this company, this company runs the waterway that tankers carry most of Europe's oil through. Israel invades the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt on October 29th, the same day Hungary announces they're leaving the Warsaw Pact. Three days later, British and French forces seize the canal to exert their authority. Eisenhower is furious over not being consulted prior to these events, 
So he actually sides with the Soviets in supporting a UN resolution condemning Britain, France, and Israel, and he demands an immediate ceasefire. And the Eisenhower Doctrine allows the president in times of Congress to preempt Congress's power to declare war. And in Cuba, the U.S. owned 80% of the country's utilities and operated a major naval base at Guantanamo Bay. And a middle-class lawyer named Fidel Castro, he gets the support of the poor in the mountain area. He drives the corrupt pro-American dictator from power. Eisenhower embargoes Cuban sugar and mobilizes opposition to Castro and some other Latin American countries. And so since Castro is cut off from all the American markets, Castro turns to the Soviets and the communists, right? And that's not all that's going on at this time. Sputnik. All right, so 1957, the Soviets will launch the first space satellite named Sputnik. By 1959, they had crash-landed an even larger payload on the moon. And this shocked Americans because if they could target the moon, they can launch nuclear missiles against the U.S., right? And this that's not all that's going on. So in 1959, the Russians had shot down a high-altitude U-2 American spy plane over Soviet territory. So Eisenhower leaves office, though with all this going on, he leaves office with the warning that too much military spending would lead to an unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex at the expense of democratic institutions. So you got a guy, former... Big four-star general, right? Where at the war? Warning you about the military getting too powerful. Should have listened to him in some instances, right? Should have listened. But then we see the election of 1960. And good old Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. Uh, he was Catholic and it raised some social concerns with the political race. So people wondered... Would he truly be able to exercise his own judgment if the Pope decrees something contrary to what the American people or public needed or wanted, right? The Vice President, Richard Nixon, uh, runs against Jack Kennedy. He's going to be running on his political experience and his reputation as being a very hard, staunch anti-communist. And his campaign is going to be hurt by the rising unemployment rate. Series of televised debates with JFK as well happens, and this is going to be the first televised presidential debate. Nixon was overtired, and he already, he hadn't shaved, so he had five o'clock shadow going on, you know, and it's a big sign under the lights. He was sick, too, and on camera, and Kennedy, on the other hand, he opted in to wear makeup on camera. He looked like he could handle the pressure as better. He's not sweating as profusely as Nixon had been. And so Kennedy ends out in the end winning the election in 1960. And in Congress, JFK, uh, while he was a senator, he really didn't have a big distinguished or outstanding career. Uh, he did support Jenner, Senator Joe McCarthy with the anti-communist crusade, but he earns himself a reputation as being a playboy. Kennedy does. As president, Kennedy chooses to surround himself with some very... Smart, bright intellectuals to take an entirely different approach to tackling the Cold War. And one of these intellectuals is going to be a man named Robert McNamara. He had been 
really big with running in the automotive industry and shaking things up, but he's then going to be the Secretary of Defense. And McNamara intends to find more flexible and efficient ways of fighting the Cold War. So during the 1952 election, Republicans, they had exploited that lagging progress in Korea, the fall of China, also that fear of domestic communism, to suggest Democrats couldn't really protect the nation's security. And Kennedy is determined to demonstrate he is not soft on communism. And there's a group saying the the Alliance for Progress. Uh, Kennedy announces... uh, in the spring of 1961 that promises to provide $20 billion in foreign aid to Latin America over 10 years. This is four times the amount of aid given under Eisenhower. In return, Latin American countries would agree to reform unfair tax policies and begin agricultural land reforms. If successful, this would discourage uh, revolutions like Castro's. And so the Kennedy administration is also going to establish the Peace Corps, And this program sends very idealistic young men and women to third world countries to provide technical, educational, and public health services. Under the alliance, most Peace Corps volunteers would be assigned to Latin America. And Kennedy believes that the Soviets had made space the final frontier of the Cold War. Only a few months after JFK's inaugurated, there's going to be a Russian cosmonaut that orbits the Earth for the first time. And in response, JFK challenges Congress to authorize a manned space mission to the moon that would land by the end of the decade. And in February of 1962, John Glenn will circle the Earth three times. And gradually, the American space program starts to gain on the Russians. All right. So Kennedy, even though he's doing some good things like establishing the Peace Corps and such, it wasn't always so great. Right. And actually starting his administration wasn't a good spot. The Eisenhower administration, they had authorized the CIA to try and overthrow Fidel Castro's communist regime in Cuba. It's just 90 miles south of Florida. And being very anxious to establish his own Cold War credentials, JFK approves an attack by a 1400 member army of Cuban exiles in April of 1961. And the rebel forces will land at Bay of Pigs in Cuba. And no discontented rebels were, like, already there making their way to the invading forces side, you know. But within two days, Castro's army had rounded them all up. So the American-backed prime minister in South, in Vietnam, South Vietnam, and Golden Diem, is growing more and more unpopular there, though. So, South Vietnamese communists, known as the National Liberation Front, the NLF, they will wage a guerrilla war against Diem with the support of North Vietnam. Some Buddhists and other groups will back the rebellion. Um, and all the while, Ngoden Diem is very violently persecuting them and executing them. But in May of 1961, JFK is going to secretly order 500 Green Berets and military advisors to Vietnam to try and prop up Diem. And by 1963, that number rose to more than 16,000. So the Kennedy administration encourages the military in South Vietnam to stage a coup. And the military captures Diem 
And to everyone's shock and surprise, they actually execute him. And it's not just Vietnam that's giving Kennedy some issues and Cuba as well. But in 1961, a summit held in Vienna gives the president the first chance to kind of take up the measure of Nikita Khrushchev. He demands that East and West Germany should be reunited. The problem of Berlin, where East Germans are fleeing to the western zone of the city, had to be settled in six months, he says. And Kennedy leaves the summit worried that Khrushchev is going to see him as weak and inexperienced. His fears will be confirmed in August when the Soviets throw up a very heavily guarded wall, sealing off West Berlin from the rest of the eastern zone. So McNamara, he begins a program to bury missile sites underground and also develop submarine-launched missiles. And he says this is mutually assured destruction. This is going to deter a Soviet threat, right? So just by us having this nuclear triad of land, air, and sea-based missiles... You know, we possess all of this. That's going to prevent the Soviets from ever attacking us. So, he also wants to have enough American missiles to survive in order to retaliate. Because what if the Soviets, you know, take out all the subs or all the planes? Or if the Soviets take out all of our, like, hidden underground missiles, right? What's going to happen? So he was like, you know, in the event one goes down, we have backups, right? So the missiles of October. Yeah, so the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962, this is going to be the closest the Soviet Union and the U.S. ever came to an actual nuclear attack. President Kennedy warned repeatedly the U.S. would treat any attempt to place offensive weapons in Cuba as being an unacceptable threat. And Khrushchev pledges that the Soviet Union has no intention of doing this, but just kind of like in private, he's like, yeah, whatever. In May of 1962, he will order the building of a secret nuclear base in Cuba. Khrushchev does this. Throughout the summer, the buildup is undetected by Americans. By October 14th, U-2 spy planes discover the missile sites during their overflights. So, October 22nd, on this day, word of the tension leaked to the public through the press. Over the next few days, tensions escalated as a Soviet submarine approaches the American naval blockade. The morning of October 27th alarmed a lot of Soviet technicians because they detected a U-2 spy plane over Cuba. And Soviet officers, being very fearful of an attack, they shot the plane down, killing the pilot. Kennedy, wanting to try and resolve the crisis through diplomatic channels, he accepts a secret offer from Khrushchev to remove the Soviet missiles in return for an American pledge not to invade Cuba. Kennedy also gives some assurances that U.S. missiles pointed at the Soviet Union stationed in Turkey would be removed within half a year. And so this nuclear showdown prompts Kennedy to try and seek ways to control the nuclear arms race. And the administration negotiates a nuclear test ban with the Soviets prohibiting all above-ground nuclear tests. As well. Hope you enjoyed it, guys.